We're going to take our time through the text. Uh, in three movements, we're going to have a, a lament, a charge, and a prospect. A lament, a charge, and a prospect. We'll start with lament. Because that is, uh, well, that's what frames this little portion. So where we are in Amos, we're in the third, um, uh, it's the third time that Amos has said, hear this word, which I mentioned last week. We had hear this word in chapter 3, verse 1. We had hear this word in chapter 4, verse 1. And here now we have hear this word. It's a new, it's a new word. And uh, this time, it's a lament. Uh, it's a funeral song. It's a song that you sing uh, at a funeral. And actually, if you look down to verse 16 and 17, you'll see that the theme of lamenting is there as well. Look what it says. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. See that wailing? The farmers will be summoned to, and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards. <clears throat> it's a lamentation. It's a lament. It's a dirge. It's a song of sadness that you sing at a funeral. That's what frames this little section. <clears throat> and what that means is that it's a it's a picture of death. It's a picture of describing the nation of Israel by uh, as dead. And that's what we see in verse 2. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. Deserted in her own land, with no one to lift her up. It's the imagery of battlefield. Fallen, fallen are the mighty on the battlefield. And here it's fallen is virgin Israel. It's a song of sadness. And you say Israel is dead. <clears throat> I think the reason why he uses, why he says fallen is virgin Israel is because it's a, um, but using that designation as a way of heightening the sadness of the situation. She didn't move into the stage of wife and a mother, she was in her, she didn't fulfill her goal, as it were, not dead. That's not to say something about what all women have to do, but there's a movement there that's part of why it would be sad, and this time it would be seen as, that it was a blessing to be married, to have children, and so to say fallen is virgin Israel, it's a way of saying she's not, she's not achieved, she's not, um, grown up into her purpose. She's fallen, she's died, and it's sad. So it's a picture of death. And I think it comes as quite a shock, or it would have done, a loss to say that, uh, especially at this time because Israel is prosperous. Uh, Israel appears to be doing well. So why uh, is he saying that she is dead? Uh, and I can't help but be reminded 
at that point. Just of this dynamic with Israel saying, I'm going to, there he is, he's in Samaria, he's pronouncing a prophecy, and he's saying to his, of, in his messages, listen to this lament that I take up over you. And it's a song that says, you're dead. While everybody looks very alive, we look prosperous, everything looks fine. Jeroboam has been reigning for quite a while. We don't seem to be defeated by our enemies at this present time. Why are you making a lament over us? And I can't help but be reminded of Ephesians 2 that we read this morning, where uh, the assessment of Paul is that before our encounter with Christ, Paul can say, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses. You were dead in your sins, in which you once walked. And that a way of describing the world that doesn't know Christ is that they are dead. When they look at one level, very much alive. <clears throat> so that's the lament that frames this portion, and that's what Amos wants to uh, bring uh, to their attention. And secondly, <clears throat> we have a charge. There's a reason why Israel is in the situation that they're in. They are dead because of their own sin. And the specific sin is injustice. Let's just walk through this um, section, making note of some of the ways in which they have exercised, exhibited, this injustice. So in verse 7, they are those who turn justice into bitterness. See, justice is the issue. Again in verse 7, they cast righteousness to the ground. And the idea here, interestingly, is that they make righteousness, it's a bit of a weird way to say it, and I presume that's why they haven't translated it this way, is they make righteousness lay down to rest on the ground, or they leave righteousness laying on the ground. It's kind of like, I'm not sure if they're not quite burying righteousness, but they're like leaving righteousness dead on the ground. In verse 10, they hate the one who upholds justice in the court, and they detest the one who tells the truth. Again, we have that theme of justice, but here it's focused on uh, detesting those who speak the truth in the legal court. And I'll just make a note here on this verse 10. That strikes me as something that, oh, I don't know, perhaps you've, you've um, experienced this yourself. Uh, it's when you encounter the one who especially if you're not quite doing what's right, and then somebody comes along and they're not involved, or they speak truth, or they act with righteousness into that context that you're in, and there's a sense in which you kind of want to get that person out of the way, or wish that that person wasn't, um, wasn't saying those things, because it's kind of just a little bit irritating, really. 
it's the kind of, and the way that we um, deal with it sometimes is you see, we actually uh, make out what that person's, um, that we make out like that person's the bad, and like, oh, I guess they're just holier than everyone else then, you know? And that might just be the case, actually. They might just be holier than everyone else. Um, or we say, uh, you know, um, uh, they're so righteous, you know, they're so, um, they, they're so um, goody two shoes, you know. And we kind of make out like they are the ones who are doing the wrong thing, when actually they might be the ones who are speaking the truth and doing what's right, but it's just making us uncomfortable because it's exposing how we are not doing what's right and speaking what's true. <clears throat> So I guess I'm just saying here in verse 10, I can see that this, in, this has occurred in my own heart and I've seen it play out uh, over the years in various contexts um, that there is a, there's opposition, there is a repulsion. That's what sin wants to do. It wants to get the truth speaker and get the one who brings correction out of the picture, especially if the person is not themselves humble and repentant. And that also, it just that this one little theme here, I think finds its um, end point in Christ, who comes and comes as light. And you know, John 3.19, here's the verdict, life has come into the world, but people loved darkness because their deeds were evil. And so at the end of the day, what they want to do is they want to silence Jesus and shut Jesus out. Because Jesus is somebody who comes as a light and shines light um, onto uh, the evil deeds of the people around them. And the conclusion is to snuff the light out. I think that that is where this verse travels through, where we experience and where it finally finds its end in Christ. He is the, the one who speaks truth in the gate and is hated and eventually crushed. So they hate the one who speaks the truth. There's a corruption in the court. Next, we see that they defraud the poor. So here in verse 11, you levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. And I think what that's getting at is it, this is an unjust system. We don't precisely know how this is a problem, what the precise details of it are. Uh, but we can see here that uh, because it's built in amongst the accusations, they're somehow twisting things in such a way that even the poor people, um, they've created a way to sap their money from them. They defraud the poor of all the people. Not only so, but they oppress the innocent in verse 12, and they take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. <clears throat> this same issue, if you just glance down at verse 15, we see that maintaining justice in the courts is what the Lord wants them to do, and that's one of the things that they weren't doing there. And that just highlights that that is one of the key themes of um, this chapter and what one of the key issues. The point we're supposed to notice here 
is that there is social injustice. That's what's going on. And it's the poor who are coming off worse, and it's people in positions of power, because these things are happening in the court. Other translations will say that these things are happening at the gate, and the gate is a place where decisions are made. It's the place where uh, the elders of the city would reside. And so this is a place of power. These are the leaders who are not acting justly. I think there are two applications for us here. I think there's a direct application for some. I don't know what positions you have. uh, And I don't know what positions uh, people who might be listening online have. I can see a direct application for people who are in places where they make decisions presumably people who pay wages, people who are in positions of power in the legal system, uh, then, then surely there's applications for politicians. Uh, there's application for anybody who uh, yeah, is responsible for somebody else's wages. And the application is to do what's right, to do what's just, to do what's fair, uh, not to oppress people who don't have much power, not to use your position of power to um, to extract from those who are weak. I think there's a, a direct application here. And sometimes, uh, at, just on this point here, We talk about radical transformation in the world. We talk about longing for change in the world. I think it would be remarkable the amount of change that we would see in the world if this was applied. If people who, in places of power, weren't selfish and greedy and cheating and... um, swindling their taxes and cutting corners here and cutting corners there, who weren't propping themselves up at the expense of others, who weren't creating systems in which poor people uh, struggle to get by and they scrape every last penny out of them that they can. But instead, we're acting with justice and righteousness and equity. If that was happening in our courts, if that was happening with our politicians, if that was happening amongst all of our businesses, I think there'd be quite a lot of change in the world. And I, and, I, and I wouldn't be surprised if most people that hear it would pass the buck to someone else. I wouldn't be surprised if that's what would happen. Then it would be someone else who's actually responsible. But I wonder what would happen if everybody took their own responsibility for the place that they were in, for the position that they were in, for the role that they had to live out truth and live out justice. <clears throat> sometimes, the reason I say that is because it can feel sometimes like we need to create a, a great big system to fix the, the problem. But actually, the great big system is made up of individuals. And if all the individuals were aligned, then presumably the problem would disappear. It's as I say to my children, and then have to apply to myself. 
I see that you're squabbling with one another. If both of you are applying the principle of be generous toward the other and assume the best of them, suffer long and deal with much pain, uh, then surely you'll be able to get along. If that's not, if you're not getting along, then one of you or both of you are not doing that. But if you were both doing that, then presumably you'd get along. Give, think of the other person's needs before yours. That's just a point to say there is a direct application for some, and I think it would have a huge change. But I think there's a derivative principle for others as well, because I suspect that this type of thing doesn't just happen overnight. And I also suspect that this type of thing doesn't just happen only by the bad people out there who occupy those positions. And so I see these tiny little seeds in my own life, and I think I need to weed them out there as well. And an example of this is, can you imagine if you were in that position and the pressure that might be on you to say what's true? It might be easy in that context to not say things that are true, to say things that are slightly, slightly off from the truth. So in order to maintain justice, justice is a broad term, but it involves speaking what's true. To what degree am I always speaking what's true? It also involves courage. It would take courage in that position to speak up, to stand out, to put your neck out, to risk your own, um, your job, to risk your position amongst your friends. Perhaps you've become good friends with people who you've worked with and your wife is good friends with them and you have kids and you hang out on the weekends and you're both in the same company and you know that something that you're doing is wrong and so you feel the cost of saying what's true because you've seen how somebody speaks up and says the truth and they hate the person that speaks truth in the gate. So can you see the courage that it might take for that person in that position to actually speak the truth because there'll be cost to the person's life. There's a cost that comes with walking in righteousness. And then as I whittle that down, I think, right, yeah, that would take courage. Where's the courage in my life? In order to maintain justice, to speak up. I think greed would be involved. It's easy when you're in that position to think, oh, it's only a slightly larger house. It's only an extension. And so I want it so badly, I'm actually, my focus is over here, rather than on what's true and on what's right, because of greed. I know I can see greed in my own heart. We have a washing machine uh, that um, hasn't been fixed by John Lewis. And so here I am trying to find a replacement after six months that they haven't fixed it. And I find myself with first world problems. Oh, this washing machine only has an eight kilogram wash cycle and a four kilogram dry cycle. 
But the washing machine that we purchased had a nine kilogram wash cycle and a six kilogram dry cycle. I deserve a nine kilogram wash cycle and a six kilogram dry cycle. And before you know it, I feel that I, I really need a nine and a six. How can anybody get by with an eight and a four? Where does this come from? Dial the clock back a few years and I'll just be grateful to have a washing machine. Now I've got one that both washes and dries, but I still want one that has all the extra perks. And you know what else there is? It's not just the size. You can actually get a washing machine for about 100 pounds more. And guess what? When it spins, it's eight decibels quieter. Right? That's legit. I want that. I want my washing machine to be like a whisper. <laughs> and I probably wouldn't be satisfied then. I want someone else to do it. I want it to hang itself and put itself back in my, in my drawer. I, I don't know. There's a kind of greed there, even just in my own heart. It's like, right, get the next thing, the best thing. My washing machine's not good enough. The point here is just these people who are in these positions, as I've said, Injustice is probably a network of things that are going on when you get to that point, and greed, no doubt, is one of them. And I've seen in my own life, there's a derivative principle, I think, that is applied here. And the point and the reason why I'm, I'm pushing this is to try to get us out of seeing a passage like this and seeing justice like this as somebody else's problem out there. I'm just going to do two more, and that is comfort. Look what they want to do. That you have built, verse 11, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. Comfort, I can imagine, would be a cause for, if you're in that position, and you want to... Uh, continue in that position, you don't want to speak the truth, you don't want to act justly, you know the cost that it's going to make on you, you know the courage you're going to, that's going to be involved. And life is actually just comfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable to act justly. It's going to be uncomfortable to enact that repentance that you know the Lord is requiring of you, that he's requiring of these people because of comfort. And finally, I mean, there's, there's more, but I'll just do one more, which is the ability to turn a blind eye. And I've mentioned this already uh, with um, the way that it's easy to point the finger at somebody else and say, ah, it's probably their problem. Uh, where I imagine that lots of people who are perhaps in positions where they are acting unjustly, that it would be easy to say, it's not me whose role it is. It's not me in this position to, to have that um, authority or to make those changes or to say something about that. Uh, it's always somebody else. We pass the buck. And just as I think it's easy to pass the buck, I think it's easy to turn a blind eye. I think it's easy to, to convince ourselves that uh, what we see happening, we didn't really see happening. 
And so the injustice, perhaps, that they saw happening in the gate, they didn't really see happening in the gate. We heard <laughs> from so-and-so that so-and-so was doing something, and we thought, don't tell me that you said, don't tell me that, um, that that's happening. I don't want to know that it's happening. Because it started to get into my world. It started to become my responsibility. I'm now starting to hear about things that are going on. And it's, it's easier, in fact, to turn it on. That's the charge, and it is a problem at a national level. It's probably a problem that's happening in the leadership, and they're the ones really, and I've just pushed it in here to say, what does the Lord require of us? What is true justice? Uh, to examine our own hearts a bit and to think about this concept a bit more. So that's the situation. The lament and the charge. They, they are, the pronouncement is that they are dead. There are dead people. And it's because of injustice. But then, in here, we have a prospect. <clears throat> We see it uh, four times, I think. It's phrased differently, but I think they all have the same force. They're all imperatives. You see one at the end of verse 4, which kind of looks like the beginning of verse 5 in, in the way that the um, text is laid out. And that is, seek me and live. And then you see it again at the beginning of verse 6. Seek the Lord and live. And then I think you see the same idea in verse 14 and verse 15. In verse 14 it says, Seek good, not evil, that you may live. And then in verse 15, Hate evil, love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. If you've been here for this series so far, You've perhaps felt how devastating things are for Israel um, at this time and how strong a word Amos has had about them. He's, I've used the language in previous sermons of inescapable and comprehensive destruction that is coming for them because of their injustice and their unrighteousness. Uh, and even now, we've got quite strong language, which is Amos taking up a lament over this nation. He's, he's speaking of them and weeping over them as though they are dead. But then, and we haven't had much of this in Amos, and so this is one of the rays of light that comes through, we have these words as an act of grace and mercy. It's amazing that the Lord, even at this stage with these people, holds out to them the offer of repentance. Seek me and live. That's what we, exactly what they need to do, isn't it? The picture is that they are dead and they need to live. 
And so the Lord holds out an offer of repentance. Seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. This is again a picture of the Lord's patience and grace. We just think about what this might look like, what it might look like for them. What is that? What is that call for them to do? I think it's got two movements. The first is in verses four and uh, four to six, and the second is in verses fourteen to fifteen. And you can see that there's a slight difference in the way that it's worded, but we'll just unpack that a little bit. I think the first movement of repentance is to the Lord. See, that's where the focus is in the in the first. In the first two imperatives, seek me and live. And then in, the, in verse 6, seek the Lord and live. And what he does in verse, uh, verse 4 is then he sets the, the Lord off against Bethel and Gilgal, these places of false worship, the place where the worship is uh, skewed. And so I think the first movement in the repentance, is a movement towards the Lord. It's a movement towards right worship in the first instance. And the second movement, I think, is to the fruit of repentance. So what he see what notice what he says in verse 14. The words are changed slightly. Seek good, not evil that you may live. And then, verse 15, hate evil, love good, which is the next imperative. And so, forgive me if I'm reading too much into this, but if there's a movement through this lament and through this um, invitation, then the movement is quite a good picture of true repentance. It's not uh, the order, as it were, is to the Lord first, and then from the Lord, what will, what will follow, if there's been a true move to the Lord, is the true fruit of repentance, which is a changed lifestyle, which is seeking good, not evil, and loving good and maintaining justice in the courts. And that's perhaps a good thing to hold on to as a picture of repentance. That repentance is not merely a uh, confession, but it's a confession that bears fruit. The Lord wants uh, changed lives, not just changed confession. I'm just going to make one more point before turning towards uh, where I think this might go in another picture and try to Work with me as we try to think about how this might apply, or how this might lead us to Christ. The first thing I want to say um, in finishing is, I think this is a good point in Amos. We've seen it already, but now feels like a good day to say it. That the Lord loves justice and righteousness. 
He really, really, really cares about how people treat one another. I think I had played that down in my own heart. And reading, in my time in reading Amos this, for this series, I think I've been struck fresh in a way that I haven't been before. I feel, I feel that it's something that I think I've known and I'm centred to and I agree with. But to see the Lord coming back to it again and again and driving this point home, he really, really doesn't like injustice. He really, really, really doesn't like it when people within power use that power to twist the truth and cause people who are poor and needy and weak and innocent to come off badly and be used and be trampled on and be crushed to the expense of someone else so that they can live in luxury. He really, really, really doesn't like that. And he's not kidding with the nation of Israel. He's, he's had the final straw. He's told them that this, the end is coming and there won't be any escape. He cares that much about it. So that's just, that's just a thing about the Lord. As we look up, as we want to know what our God is like, He is a God who really, really loves justice and righteousness. He cares about it a lot and He wants us to live like that as His people. Because that's the kind of God He is. He's not a God who crushes the hands of the poor. He's not a God who abuses his power. He's a God who defends the poor. He's a God who helps the need. He's a God who has compassion on the weak. He's a God who loves truth and righteousness and rightness. That's the God that he is. And that's the type of people that he wants. So that's one of the final things that I'll say as we come to a close. And the last thing is, Journey with me. How do we pull it together? How does this point to Christ? I feel like there's something more here. And I'm clutching a bit. But I feel like there's something, there's something here. There's a dead people and a promise to seek God and live. Somehow there's a connection here. I can't help but see this, this death and life idea of seeing this um, uh, seeing that this is a work of Christ he takes dead people and he makes them alive and and the gospel goes out to people as I've said from, uh, from Ephesians 2 who are dead in their sins and the gospel goes out to them and it's a call to Turn of true repentance to seek the Lord to give yourself to Jesus and live and really and so what we see here in a kind of you are going to die physically and temporarily in this present life and you seek me and live there's a deeper reality there's a promise in Christ of eternal life seek me and actually live forever. 
And there's a reality that exists amongst us and amongst the world today. That the world is dead. And they need and there will be an eternal death. But they can seek the Lord and they can truly live. And maybe there's something to it. I think there's a few points here, and I've mentioned one already. Just as I went through this list of the charges of injustice, you know, the charge, injustice, and the things that they do, I thought, I wonder if if the New Testament writers were reading this or were referring to Christ, whether they wouldn't have picked up on a few of these and seen Jesus as a poor man. I've already mentioned that he's the one who spoke the truth and was shut out. It seems to me that he is righteousness personified that they live, that they lay on the ground. It seems to me that uh, he does not get any justice in the court as he stands before Pilate the innocent, and you know how Pilate wants to make make it really clear, this man is innocent, and Jesus stands there as the innocent in the courts, and they say, crucify him. And it says that they take bribes. And I was reminded of Judas, who was happy to take some money for handing over Jesus to get him out of the picture. And so maybe it's the case and somehow these are linked. Um, that it's because Jesus put himself in that position and took the full, he, he put himself in that position of the poor uh, and took the scorn, took the ill treatment that the poor, that the poor received uh, and is what our injustice would want to grow up into so that the promise of eternal life could be made available. That he went to death to make to make the um, the invitation to seek me and live a reality for us. That a lament song was taken up over him so that we could have life. I'm going to leave us there.